Hi, and welcome to episode 134 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Marielle Mitchell joining us. Upon discovering what orofacial myofunctional therapy had to offer, Dr. Marielle was blown away. Combining it with the frameworks she'd already learned as an OT with expertise in feeding, swallowing, cranial nerve integration, and sensory processing, OMT opened new doors for treatment. As soon as she started implementing her combined framework, her outcomes improved, and she became the go-to expert on tongue-tie release, long-standing sensory issues, and ongoing swallowing and feeding difficulties. Her passion for OT and OMT comes from her experience as a child experiencing underlying issues that never got recognized or addressed until adulthood. She feels so fortunate to have access to knowledge so few people know about. It has completely transformed her life and her treatment methods. She strives to find and connect the missing dots between oral rest posture, sensory processing, the nervous system, sleep, cranial nerve dysfunction, swallowing, and feeding. These various facets of the human experience impact daily function much more than people realize, and Dr. Marielli is excited to be a pioneer in the field to bring these issues to light. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Vulcan. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Mary Ellie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to chat with you. Yeah, me too. Thank you for having me. You're you're a doctor of OT, which is, I think, phenomenal because there are not a lot of OTs who are present online in the Mayo world. And so (laughs) I know you do much much more than just Mayo, but how did you come into this space? Yeah, that's a really good question. So about, so when I got out of school, I basically kind of like full charged ahead on a lot of different types of like specialties that I want to get into and sensory processing was one of them. And I was really, really into it. I got trained under people who learned under Jane Ayers and I was really into sensory integration for the first like two to three years of my career. And I got into feeding after that. And what I realized with like regulation, organization behavior and like level of arousal, I was plateauing with a lot of kids. I could get them a trampoline at their house. I could get them on a swing all day. I could do the ball pit. I could do, you know, things at their desk that would like give them the tactile input that they were looking for. But there were still kids that were really, really dysregulated. And I was kind of, as a clinician, I was getting really frustrated and, um, I was starting to get into feeding at that point in time when I was taking my, you have five years to get an SWC as a OT. So I was in all these feeding courses. And one of my feeding courses was about early intervention and like NICU babies. And this woman was talking about the feedback loop between mothers who nurse and uh, when they're breastfeeding their baby. And then she kind of got into osteopathy and I was like, huh, okay, like that's a really interesting profession I haven't really heard too much about. And I kind of started like looking into it. And then I met an osteopath who ironically was working like a block and a half away um, from my house. And we actually shared a patient. And um, when he met me, we just started like nerding out and talking and talking all this like neuro stuff. And we just really like got along really well. And he's like, you know, I really think that you should look into this tongue therapy. And I was like, what? And he was like, you have to, you have to meet this woman, Joy Muller. And this is like seven, eight years ago. And I was like, okay. And so when someone just tells me I should just go do something, I, I'm the kind of person who's going to ask, I'm like, here, here, 
let's just go take my card. Where do I sign? Let's just go. I just follow like the, the, the breadcrumbs. And so as I um, went to go meet Joy Moeller, I just asked her and I was like, Hey, I'm an occupational therapist. I'm a feeding specialist. I'd like to kind of just get to know what you do. She was like, come into my office, just observe me for a few hours. And I was like, okay, sure. And my, that day I felt like I got hit by a car. Um, when I met her back then and the way she described the function of the tongue, the way it impacts the airway, the way it can block the airway, how it can be dysfunctional and how it impacts sleep and my, and how I knew sleep impacted like sensory processing and attention and all these higher executive issues that we work with, with kids. I was like, Oh my God. I was so, I was so in shock that day. And I personally also have my own myo issues. I had uh, ear infections my entire life until I was like 30 and I had a really not like a really bad one. And I've, I'm currently, I have two alphas in my mouth. Like I'm, I've been on the other side of it too. And so when I learned this stuff, I went back to my clinic and I was opening every kid's mouth and like 40% of them had big tonsils. And I was like, oh my gosh, how did I, how did I not know? Cause you just like, you don't know until you know. And I was looking for tongue ties as well. And so many of them also had that all these kids were in speech. They had been in speech since they were like two. Now they're in speech for five years doing all these drills and like not make plateauing, make not making much progress. They were in feeding and like having crazy crossbites and the tongue wasn't able to move. And I was like, how are they ever going to chew these molars that don't even align? And my mind was just blown that day. And I, ever since then, I've just been kind of digging through the myofunctional world more and more and more as I can. And that's kind of how it evolved. And I've been taking courses like in the oral facial malfunctional world, a little bit outside of it too, as well, combining my frameworks with sensory processing, neuro, and then myo, I take a very sensory myo-based approach. And I think that's why I can work with a lot of younger populations because it's not necessarily asking them for a motor response, it's more stimulating the actual nerves. And so there's a, like a lot of different frameworks that I kind of just combine to make kind of like a method that I use. And it's been, I've at least been able to work with little ones really effectively in that sense and adults too, because they just, listen. So it's easier, <laughs> but, um, you know, and the motor response is there a lot of the time. So, and, but I have to do a habit that's 37 years in place, 42, 50, what you name it. Right. And someone who hasn't been sleeping well for a long time. So I got into it through like lots of different places. And, um, you know, I had one patient specifically that before I even got into Mayo was kind of like a, a huge kind of like almost like a, a big breadcrumb. And I had a little girl who was a preemie twin and she was really, really, really aggressive and really like almost violent in her sessions. And I knew that wasn't who she was. I knew something was going on, but I could put her on a swing all day. Parents bought everything. They had a sensory gym at home, like so, and like people were there daily giving her the input, but she still was just so falling asleep every day on the car ride home, sweating profusely at when she was sleeping. And I just didn't know what it was. And mom talked to me, like, should I get her tonsils out? Should I not? Blah, blah, blah. And at the time I was like, well, it's a surgery. And I didn't know anything. And I was like, but if she can't breathe and like, I can hear her snoring when I go to like with you to take her out of the car, like maybe you should. And that little girl got her tonsils out. And then I saw her two weeks later and she was like, Mary like what game do you want to play? And I was like, are you okay? <laughs> like, I was like, it was, it was, I was like, oh, there's something here. And then that's when I also kind of was like starting to talk to pediatricians and I was like, well, why are their tonsils getting big? And no one could really like answer me. They were like, well, we're not sure. Like they're just breathing through their mouth, you know, and like nothing more to that. And I was like, okay. Then I met Joy Moeller and I was like, oh, okay. Like these kids aren't breathing. This is a problem. This is like a basic need. And that's where I kind of, um, 
any person who comes into my office, I kind of always just explain it to them. I'm like, if you don't have this basic need met, you can't function. And there's no, I don't have a right to label any, anything else, unless we get this basic need met. It's like, you're not eating, you know, or you're not eliminating. Yeah. It's one of the three. So it's kind of how I got into it. It's an interesting little story with a lot of different turns. Well, and I, I love it. You said a couple of things that like made my brain just go like, yes, like for one, you know, I love that you can work with the little ones because traditional myofunctional therapy and people hear me preach this all the time. It's really geared for like, you need to have the cognitive ability of a four-year-old to truly engage in traditional myo. But when you're an SLP or an OT who has additional training and like feeding, and you've got even additional training beyond that, you know, we can work with these little ones and we should not be waiting. We need to be working with them as soon as the issue is identified. And I am like a on this like new, like rampage of like, we need to be screening these kids at birth. Like this needs to be done in the hospital. And then we should be screening them. You know, the pediatrician should be screening them at well checks every, you know, at least every year, or we should be screening them in the preschool. So like when we do speech language OT screens through my private practice and preschools, we do a myo screen, which is like kind of a sleep screen. It's kind of our window into being able to open that conversation with parents and you know, we need to be, we walk into classrooms where children are taking naps to drop off one kid and pick up our next little one that we might work with. And we see a kid who's not a kid we're working with, with their mouth open and they're audibly breathing or snoring. And, you know, we can say, Hey, does, is this common? Like, do they do, do they do this all the time? And they'll say, yeah. And, you know, and we can then have them reach out to the parents and have the parents connect with us. And so there's so many different avenues that like we take to try and get in with these kids because this whole wait and see approach is, it's not just not okay. Not just unfortunate. It's dangerous. It is downright dangerous. We are act. We actually have these kids who are struggling to breathe in their sleep. And I don't say that to alarm or scare parents, but you know, if you are lacking oxygen, right. If someone's putting you in a chokehold, how does that feel? And to think that some of these kids are sleeping like that at night is it's scary. And we, it should be more mainstream knowledge that like you can have your child checked and we should not wait until they're old enough to do traditional Mayo. We need I call it like feeding with a twist of Mayo um, when they're little ones that like we can get in there and we can work with them and we don't need that deliberate response, that oral motor response necessarily like, you know, that volitional response. It can be automatic. It can be through using reflexes and, it can be, you know, and I know this, I'm preaching to the choir here. So I love that you said that. <laughs> it's just so exciting to hear someone else say that too. And I really think, you know, like people are always like, well, my dentist said to just wait and see. And I'm like, jaw development kind of like takes a massive pause around six and seven. Like yeah. you need to get in. I was like molars, like you need to get a device in your mouth. And, you know, I think a lot of things that people also kind of jump the gun on not to kind of like steer us another way is like, they'll do a release, but they won't won't do any of this habitual retraining and there'll be a pacifier in the picture. There'll be thumb sucking or there'll be excessive bottle use. And I get so many cases where the reattachment is way worse. I mean, I didn't see the pre, but maybe I'll see a video or a photo and the reattachment is so high and so much more intense because that negative pressure that's put on the bottom from that bottle or pacifier thumb. And it's just, the, the way that people just think that like, oh, we'll just release them when they're little. And they're like, it's going to just all get better. And it's no, it's not a magic bullet. It's not that at all. It's the function it's of a this. very large puzzle. Yeah. And we yeah, need it's, supporting therapies in order for it to be successful in most cases. Yeah. Unless they're, unless they're like infants and they're exclusively nursing. Right. And that's kind of like where I've started to work with super, super little ones, six days old, three weeks old, six weeks old, that kind of profile. And it's, I can see as an occupational therapist who used to do a lot of like NDT, CME, all of like the neuro-based handling techniques, those kids, those babies who we work with really early on and they get their tongue up to their palate and they exclusively nurse 
for a while and then we move on to feeding. And I do want, I, I personally have like, I, I love my pediatricians that I work with, but not all the kids that I work with. I, I'm super, super close to those pediatricians because I see people from all over now, which is like amazing because of Zoom and like a silver lining of, um, you know, COVID. Yeah. Um, I do my own wellness checks, three, six, nine, 12. I check on them the first month, the first year, because it's so important for that oral motor like development to happen. And when no one else is doing that, I get, I get nervous. And I've, when I wasn't doing that, I would get these cases that would relapse and I'd be like, okay, I have to like take it upon myself to do this. Cause I don't know if anyone else is. And I'm so with you about the school thing. I would love to create some type of like national international program, get in with the school districts where it's like, why do we check their ears for hearing and their eyes for seeing? And we're not right. taking them their way. Right. Why? Like we need a screening tool where it's like the teachers can be like, Oh, there's two golf balls in the mouth. Yeah. You go to the right side. And if they're not, you go to the left side. Great. Okay. Well, I mean, hi, we know that that hearing and vision are also impacted by neurofacial myofunctional disorder. So if that's Absolutely. the root cause of a lot of these, I'm not saying all of them, but oh, we know it's all interconnected. Why are we not screening for the root cause, right? Like that, it's funny. I just had this conversation on the panel. I was like, we screen for vision. We screen for hearing. We screen for speech and language sometimes. And OT, you know, fine motor, gross motor, sometimes in the preschools, like it should be mandatory that we're screening for airway first and foremost ahead of everything else. I totally agree. I I feel like um, this is what I love about our like little niche group of people in the world is that it's such a basic need. And I I think it's so great also that that book breath came out, James Nestor and like someone who's not vested in this at all, like just completely objective opinion brought this information to the forefront. And I, when I, when I give parents that book and like gasp or jaws and things like that, or those chapters four and five, especially of gasp, like that's when people really resonate and they're like, oh, okay. And it's this like, they finally get it. And I, I really hope and wish, and that's kind of like why I was like, okay, there's no OTs doing this. No one's really like the, the having taken the opportunity for this like mission to come from an occupational therapist. And I really wanted to, I feel really strongly about it because I've seen it for so long and I've had to argue with, not argue, but I've had to kind of inform people about, no, this is a really big issue. These are things that like, I can do occupational therapy with your kid. No problem. That's fine. But you're going to be in therapy for like five years because they're not sleeping. Like another thing was like, I would teach these kids like the alphabet, their name and like not switching the D and the B and like all these things. And it would like, he knew it one week and then didn't the other. And I was like, this is, you knew this sticking yeah why is it not sticking you knew this like what like what am I and I would like try different modalities and all these different things and like maybe I did it in a bean pit maybe we did it in the swing no like he just wasn't sleeping you know and I I always tell people like especially like moms I think they can really resonate with this I'm like do you remember your fourth trimester do you remember how sleep deprived you were and how like you would cry at a commercial or anything you know like yeah. that's your kid. That's like and, seven in fight or flight. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Or freeze, you know, and they're just like, uh, and they can't answer a question. Like that's, that's how people I think can relate to it. And they just think that I think we've, I, I think what you were saying too, in one of your posts, like we've normalized these things because the occurrence of it has increased, but yeah, but that doesn't mean it's normal. And I think that we need to get back to a baseline of true anatomy and like the thing about oral facial malfunctional therapy is like we're not reinventing the wheel here like it's anatomy what we're doing is we're respecting and honoring the like synergy of proper anatomy and people kind of like overthink it I think sometimes and it's no this is a this is anatomy and this is what it needs to be and when your anatomy doesn't function you're gonna have dysfunction somewhere else and when grandma gets a hip replacement they get therapy you know when you tell to 
tear your ACL or when you have a rotator cuff injury, trust me, I know I used to work with geriatrics when my beginning of my career, like it's Medicare pays for like therapy, you know, and it's like, it should be a thing. Like nobody should be releasing anybody unless there's pre and post out like therapeutic intervention. I always call it like, okay, the the uh, surgeon, whether it's the ENT or the dentist, is the person who hands them the driver's license. I'm driver's ed. Can they park the car in the garage? Can they like drive the car to move the, the, the food over to their molars? Like, I don't know. I have to teach them that first. But if you just give someone a license without them like learning how to drive, they <laughs> You know, and like, I feel like, you know, I like, I, I don't ever want to scare parents. I don't ever want to scare people, but it's so true what you're saying about how this is an actual true, true issue. And I feel like when people are releasing and there's no therapeutic intervention, like you are now giving a tongue that has absolutely no coordination, the ability to block an airway so much more than you ever had before. And if you can't like prevent that, I think a lot of us are, we're, there's, there's a statistically, I hope it never happens, but there's the propensity for some type of issue to arise with these types of releases, or just in general, like lack of therapeutic intervention to strengthen the tongue coordination, whatever it is, is really high. And it's scary. I, I, and like, I think a lot of them are also just reattaching. So they're, yeah. you know, the happening than they were before with worse, with additional symptoms arising as a result. So, and then we get this whole, you know, online discussion in parent groups of, oh, tongue tie releases don't work. Ours failed. This happened afterwards. And, you know, you ask them question like, well, who did you work with? Did you have support? Did you, and I'm not saying this to shame a parent or to make it seem like they didn't do their job. Mm-hmm. They were probably failed by the medical system. It's not oftentimes yeah. parents go, no, you know, I mean, there are some parents that say, no, we're just going to do the release. We're not going to do that. And yeah. okay, well, they've made their decision for themselves and their child, but most families are not even given that discussion or that information or the opportunity to have the support. And that's why I that's like one of my other big platforms of like, I will die on this hill. We need, if you have an infant who's five days old, maybe they don't get the pre, but they need to immediately get the post. Like they are like, I've had kids who, okay, great. We're going to go straight to the surgeon, release that tongue, get them on the breast. And, but they need to be getting that body work at the very least. They need to, and I, I think every newborn needs body work because they've just gone through a very traumatic birth experience, yeah. whether it's vaginal delivery or C-section, yeah. but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> You know, these babies though, if they've been, you know, I, I, I was just sharing this with the, the group of dentists this weekend, we develop our swallow by 12 weeks in utero. And that's a swallow we're going to have for life unless we intervene. And so these children, it's not that they're just born with the improper swallow. No, they've been already been doing it for two trimesters. <laughs> like and we're entering, we're headed into the fourth trimester, like you said, and it's only going to continue to get worse. And so you know, if it's not functional now, it's not just going to magically become functional itself. And, and so, you know, there was an interesting dialogue about thumb sucking going on. I know you saw, um, on my Instagram page when I posted that reel and, you know, I say, we can agree to disagree and I can still love my colleagues, even if they don't agree with this, but in my opinion, and based on the conversations I've had, the research I've read, the kind of research that's being done now, you know, I know that we've we were discussing how, you know, Kevin Boyd and Mariana Evan are looking at prehistoric skulls. And there's even some research being done looking at babies in utero via ultrasound. And with these babies, if they have their thumb, we can see retroanathic jaws. Okay. That's the first point. But if these babies have their thumb in their mouth, 
they are, they're acting as a mandibular advancement device in utero. They're bringing their jaw forward. And I get, okay, the argument is that their brains aren't developed yet at so many, you know, and so it's not a brain-based function and it's just natural is what people say. No, I'm sorry. The brain is not go- The brain does not need to be fully intact to say, "Hey, we can't breathe. Put the thumb in there." That's my opinion. <laughs> Brainstem. It's very basic need. Brainstem yeah. and close or swallow. Right. Yeah. It's an instinctive, like primal, like primitive thing that we do. It doesn't require a lot of cognitive function to do it. People yeah. can be in a coma and they can still be swallowing. Yeah. You know. So I I totally agree with you on that. And it's something that it needs. And I think we can start like you know, at least informing people a lot earlier with what their options are for this so that they're not facing this journey of like difficult sleep or difficult breathing or difficult behavior and really kind of like pulling in anything that they can because they're so desperate later when this child is like five or six and having these behaviors and they can't figure out what preschool or kindergarten class they should be in because no one can accommodate these needs. And then they're you putting know, on like, ADHD medications because nobody uh-huh. has a child and they think they have ADHD and you know and I'm like no child should ever be put on ADHD medication without a sleep study. <laughs> Yeah. I don't care if it's a home-based sleep study. I don't care if it's, you know, yeah, I don't, you better be looking at that sleep before you put a upper in a child's body. (laughs) I totally, uh, you're preaching to the choir with that. I've been saying that forever. And I, I, you know, some parents are super on board with that. And then some, you know, this is like a tough journey and it requires a lot of parent involvement. And unfortunately we have the infrastructure of a society where like not everyone can stay home with their kids and not everybody can do the repetition and the intensity of the exercises that's required for functional therapy. That's the thing where I think is also a huge, um, there's a discrepancy in why there's, it's harder to see successful faces at times because as an occupational therapist, I can tell you if I teach a kid shoe tying, it's going to be really tricky for three weeks. But once they get it, they get it. Yeah. And they do it like maybe 14 times a week, twice a day, if we're lucky. Right. Most of the times they do it 10 times. This is breathing, yeah. breathing and swallowing. They do it a million thousand times a day. And for us to change it, so much practice with that. And that falls on the parent or the nanny or whoever's with them the most. And I think that's where there's, it's difficult for a lot of parents to jump on board sometimes, because if you really, I always try to like make it, um, tangible and like inch stones, right. Not milestones. I don't, I don't like go like, Hey, we're gonna have to do all this like surgery potentially. And I don't like overwhelm people, but even then, like, it's so hard for people to get in their kid's mouth sometimes. Or like, yeah, we were just never able to brush his teeth. And now he's eight. And you're like, okay, so we're going to start here. And, you know, it's just so, I think, um, I can, it can be really intimidating for some parents. I think they want to do it so much and it's just, it's hard sometimes. And, but the parents, the families that do stick it through, they get the sleep study or we monitor the sleep in some sort of way. And even then, I mean, I've had parents I, myself too, where I've like had kids in my clinic and we had like the Nest camera before, like all this new, like cool technology came out the last year or so. This is like five years ago before whatever. And, um, we had no idea this kid was waking up from four to 7. AM, like scaling the walls. Mm. Nobody knew no parents were earplugs. I'm asked like no one knew. And this kids are just climbing everywhere, like playing and, everyone thought these kids were sleeping and, and I was like, mm, they're, like the, this doesn't look right. You know, right. like, like, <laughs> like the allergic shiners, like they've just like, they're like in, in like their regulations all over the place. And once you start looking at their sleep, people were like, oh yeah, they're not sleeping. And you're like, yeah, like this is, this is, I can put them on a swing for as long as you want. I'm sure, but yeah. we're not going to get to the bottom of this. And that's one of my like biggest things is that OTs, I think sometimes is, and I I have so much respect and I sensory processing is so effective 
when you're working with a child that sleeps. You can really, really work on some things and you can get them regulated. You can really, if you, especially if you do an intense kind of model, you can really improve motor skills. There's no doubt about that, but for things to stick and for it to actually work, they need to be sleeping. And the kids, at least in my practice, and I'm based in LA, it's a pretty like metropolitan area. Like there's like a statistically, I get all kinds of people that it's not sticking. It's not working. And I think as occupational therapists, it's our duty to kind of start like diving a little bit deeper and looking into that. And I'm, I'm happy to see, and I've been contacted by some OTs now and they, they want some guidance with it. And I'm like, yes, like we need to be their screening. Like we need to be like, we're the ones that get the kids who first, oh, can't sit still, put them in OT. Oh, you know, they, it's kind of like you guys like, oh, they got a list, send them a speech. Like we're the first screeners. We really are with the most advanced training to be able to like understand this from a like craniofacial side, neurological side, and like, you know, sensory motor. And it's just, I, I'm excited for all the momentums with it. That's with this. And I just really think that there's a huge, um, advancement to be made in our fields. And I'm, I'm happy to like talk to you and meet you and like, see that people are doing that and like doing the, like the work with it. And like, I don't know. I just, I feel like we're at a turning point a bit, but it's taking some time. Like you were just saying, right. Like you push back with CEUs and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, why are we so stuck in our ways? And why do we have to sacrifice so much time and so many people? Like if we would have waited for research on tongue ties, when like a lot of research for the kids that I was working with seven years ago, those kids would have all been on meds by now and they would have had a completely different route. Right. And they would have been like, what, nine now. And it's just like, it's so, I, you, why do we have to sacrifice so many people's like lives and like livelihood and quality of life just because, you know, we have to wait for things. If we just wait, 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 and like, don't follow what we're seeing anecdotally and clinically, I think there's some major issues. Of course I want research too. I'm not making like misinformed decisions, but there was enough research back then too. It wasn't huge, like RCTs or anything like that, but enough to like bring up some concern of like, okay, these kids aren't sleeping and they have like a 60% chance of going into special ed. Like that was the one that, that study, Yes, that was like, I was like, oh my God. Well, we have research that shows like, uh, you know, and usually it's obstructive sleep apnea in the research, but that OSA will decrease your IQ by 10 to 16 points compared to your same age, typically developing peers. And like, I know that might not sound like a lot, but for a child who's in the average range to then be decreased, that's going to knock you down quite a bit. I mean, and that's going to make school really challenging for you because especially in this day and age schools, like you got to fit it into a box. Most schools don't yeah. do various, various learning styles. So if you already are coming in with, I always say like, we've got 10 buckets, right? And if you have sleep disorder breathing, knock three of those buckets out. So if you're coming in at 70% capacity, and then let's say something else is challenging. Now we're down to 60%. And then you've got a sensory processing disorder. Let's knock that down. And then you've got a, you know, your mouth breathing and you're turned around at circle time. And I mean, it's like, you start to knock these buckets off with every little thing. What do we have left energy wise? How many energy buckets do we have left to actually attend to school and absorb the information that's being taught? It's not that these children are stupid. They're just not being given the opportunity to fully function in order to absorb what's being taught in school. And, you know, even when you try to teach from different modalities and you put some of these kids in a special ed classroom where they really probably don't always belong, you know, they just haven't been given the opportunity to learn in their, with their alongside their typically, you know, developing peers. It's just, it's frustrating. As we were talking, I was just Googling, I was like incidents of pediatric sleep disorders. And it says, according to a recent study, this was in 2017, 
the prevalence of sleep-related diseases in children and adolescents was determined to be approximately 43%. If 43% of our children back in 2017 have sleep disorders, and this could be just, you know, it doesn't have to be obstructive. This could yeah. be mild, which is still a big problem, right? We, you know, we always, if you've heard me talk, you've heard me say that Guillermo did not mean for that mild to be a written off diagnosis. He meant for that to be, no, no, there's a problem here. We need to address this. And, you know, there's other things that happen in women. It's UARS in, you know, children, we see mouth breathing and they might just be going like with slightly audible breathing. It doesn't have to be snoring. These kids, you can have sleep apnea without snoring. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things that I think are also just not mainstream knowledge. And we were actually talking a lot about this this weekend. And it's, it's just incredible to see how we are still, how we are still so far away from helping our children, because our children, you know, it's like, this is so cliche, but our children are our future and they're developing at such rapid rates that if we don't intervene now, it continues to get worse. Our, our jaws continue to shrink, which means our airway continues to be more greatly impacted as our jaws impinge on the airway. And so if we're not working to not just expand like traditional orthodontics, expand, you know, laterally, but also grow anteriorly, we have like these mid, you know, this, this mid-face deficiency, we've got these issues. And the thing that gets me is, you know, like one of my friends and colleagues who works with me has an underbite and she's in her late twenties and she had all that traditional ortho and she's got a beautifully wide U-shaped palate, except for her mandible sits too far back. One of the things I've never heard anybody talk about, and I actually just did an assessment on her this morning for my Mayo course in person, because she happens to be in Boca right now was I said, you know, she, she's, and she's an adult and she treats Mayo. So she's like really with it. Right. And so we had a really cool conversation and, you know, we, we got into talking about these kids who have beautiful U-shaped palates, but who have deficient mandibles. They're just, or maxilla, sorry, the maxilla, their upper jaws is, is just sits too far back. They can't suction their tongue properly. It's, it's not a lateral tongue space issue. The tongue fits according to what most people look for, but doesn't fit anteriorly. So then it has to slide backwards. And what happens, you could be sitting with your lips closed together and your tongue on your palate, but guess what? You're now impinging on the airway. That mm -hmm. tongue is still blocking the airway, even though you quote unquote have what most people will consider proper oral rest posture. No, no, it's not proper unless it's sitting, your mandible and your maxilla are far, are far enough forward. And so that's just, that's a conversation I don't ever hear anybody having. And so it's one of those things where like, when you start to really nerd out and go deeper into this stuff and you look at these kids who slide their tongue back when they're suctioning, yes, it can be due to weakness and maybe it's a novel task for them. But after we've been working on this for a couple of months, they're still doing that. Then we, that begs the question, like, are they tied? Do we need to grow their face forward? Do we, you know, which many of us also can identify on day one, but it's just, it's a very fascinating thing because some of my most complex cases had this issue going on, but nobody ever taught me to look to see if they can suction far enough forward and not far enough forward to have it sit two to three millimeters behind their, you know, their upper central incisors on the alveolar ridge so that it's not touching the teeth. No, far enough forward, meaning does their maxilla sit? far enough forward. Cause we work with soft tissue. We don't work with, you know, we look at anatomy, but we're not moving bone. So it's, but we need to know enough to be able to know who to refer when to refer and who to refer to so that we can give these children a new lease on life. And it's just, it's one of those things where I don't think parents realize 43% of our children have sleep disordered breathing. That makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah. I, I, couldn't agree with you more. I, I really, um, 
it kind of scares me, to be honest. I don't think as a country we're ready for, the, we don't have infrastructure or programs for people who will age out of the school district um, and their IEPs and have like functional employment for them, like to take a more traditional occupational therapy perspective from this. Yeah. We have such a rise in autism as well. Yeah. All of the ones that I know in my clinic have had some type of sleep issue, whether it's neurological with seizures or there is some type of, typically there is an oral facial malfunctional issue going on as well, or there's a cranial nerve dysfunction with that specific population that I've noticed. And the rise of autism and the rise with the sleep disordered breathing is just astounding. And it's like, oh, like, what are we going to do with all these kids when they're in their 20s? Like, what do these people do? They compensate in some way, right? They look for some type of way to regulate themselves. What are they going to be doing behaviorally at that point in time? How are they going to employ themselves? How are they going to wake up to go to employment? All of these executive functioning skills of money management and like schedule management, all those things I, makes me really, really, really nervous. And I, I don't have the answer to it other than early intervention and working on it and getting into like the school districts and getting into like actual hospitals and educating the people at the front lines of like, okay, have you seen infant that can't latch? We need to get them intervention. If there's a preemie, they need to be seen by a dentist as soon as those molars come in to help with that cranial facial development. Preemies, of course, they needed to like be on a pacifier bottle fed, duh, of course, but <laughs> Why is no one in there? Why aren't they being monitored? Why aren't they being monitored as soon as their molars come in? Why can't someone get an alpha in them? They're going to be sensory seeking kids. They've had a pacifier in their mouth for at least the first 12 months of their life. They're going to need that input. I know exactly what an alpha feels like. It feels incredible when it pops in and it locks in. It's like having a weighted blanket on your body, but in one of the most like neurodense parts of your body. And for me, it's like any kid that was ever a preemie, I'm always like, okay, you got to go to the dentist. Like I, we, I can start with you. Sure. But we really like, this is, this is more, this is structural at this point. Yeah. I'm just a functional part of it. Please go see this dentist who will get the process started. Come back to me. We can work in the same time in conjunction or let this like get in there first. And then we'll kind of go from there. Um, there's just so many populations that we could really start kind of like putting not necessarily in buckets, but to a sense saying like, okay, you need to go to the dentist. You need to go to ortho. Like you need to be in osteopathy, those kinds of things. And really just being, I think I kind of, um, I don't, again, I don't like to overwhelm parents and things, but I also like, I don't like to withhold information and I'm very transparent with them. And I'm very educational because I feel like if people understand what they're doing, they're more likely to do it rather than just kind of being like, oh yeah, I'm at therapy, but I don't really like know what's happening. And I drop her off and, or I'm going to this ENT, but I don't really know why I need them to like, I almost like quiz them. I'm like, so we're going here. Do you know why we're going here? Like, what were we, what are we asking for? And it might seem like a kind of an intense approach, but that's the best way to get compliance too. And it's, um, it's just something for me that I, we're, almost as a society and over our heads, literally like, and our heads are shrinking and it's just kind of like mind-blowing. Smaller brains. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, it just really, I mean, like I was Kevin Boyd was at AMPD and like, you know, I've loved and respect his work for so long. And it's just like absolutely mind shattering how much our skulls have changed because of the mandible and the recession of it and how people just think this is like typical and all that. I mean, there's so much that we can't control. And as a mother, you know, if we put Lily, my now six-year-old into an ALF at, at four years, and she was, she really only needed it for about nine months, but the pandemic hit. And so we kept her in it um, for a year, you know, we're like, it's not going to hurt her. So, but she was that sensory kid who picky eater had the tongue tie, you know, feeding some, some feeding stuff like horrible infant feeding experience. 
Um, very painful breastfeeding, you know, but everybody told me she was fine. Failure to thrive first percentile or whole first year, like all the things. Right. So fast forward to getting the alpha. So when the day after she got her tongue tie released, her bowel issues like disappeared. She was no longer constipated. I was "Mm, tell me that the tongue is not connected. You know, the tip of the tongue is connected from the tongue to our toes. Tell me that please. Um, I was like, because there she goes. No more. Like it was, I was like, wow, well, I wasn't expecting that really. Um, yeah. I mean, this is like a child who really, really struggled with bowel movements and was uncomfortable and, you know, and didn't have anything else going on that made sense as to why, like no allergies were coming up. No one's, you know, maybe some inflammation from dairy or something. And she was a kid who loved her dairy and her, you know, gluten, cause that's what these kids do. Right. So anyways, but I'm also that mom where like, I know epigenetically we have glycophosphates, we've got all these things going on and we've got just there's so much we can't control, right? We can, I can feed my children pasture raised, organic, you know, non-GMO, make sure they're eating a healthy diet to the extent that you, you know, they'll eat it. And my kids eat plenty of fruits and veggies and, you know, Lily just eats just a couple proteins, but a pretty well-balanced diet for a picky eater. And, um, it just, it was really interesting to see how things really changed about halfway through her. So her tonsils shrunk. They pretty much went from like really inflamed size three plus to down around size one within three months of being in the ALF. And I got people jumping down my throat for sharing that story, but we changed nothing else. And it was the middle of cold and flu season. We, she went into it in August and this was three months later. And I was like, tell me why in the middle of cold and flu season, her tonsils have shrunk. Like, what, and we've changed nothing about her diet, nothing else. Right. But also a sensory kid who doesn't like how socks, the seams of socks feel, and she won't wear tagged shirts and, you know, just all these little things that even as a mom in this space, I never really put together that she was truly a sensory kid because I was so focused on like what was going on in her mouth. And I was not really paying attention to full body impact. And it dawned on me when the things started to go away, that they were issues for her. And I was like, how did I miss this as a mom in this? I mean, I'm not an OT. That's how I missed it. But, you know, I had my OT look at her and she was like, oh, she's like super advanced in all her motor skills. Like she's, you know, fine motor looks great. Gross motor looks great. Like no concerns, but we never really looked at sensory as it related to everything going on in her mouth. And that like could have been a total game changer in infancy. Now, thankfully she's a six-year-old. She's very smart. Like she sleeps with her mouth closed unless she's sick. Like she's got a correct oral rest posture. We're fixing her lisp and Mayo right now. Um, but other than that, it's like, why are people not talking about this stuff? Why is it that like these moms and, and that's the other side of it too. I've become so passionate that anytime a mom DMs me and says, Hey, who do you know in this area? I've now created groups where I can go and say, Hey, which of you amazing specialists are in this area or who do you know? Because it's my goal to connect parents with providers who can actually help them in this, you know, in this arena. So that's yeah. my, my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And I, I like that you're talking about the sensory part of how it's connected to myo and all that kind of stuff as well. And I think that's something that a lot of people overlook a lot of the time. And I, to, to put it simply, you know, I mean, I don't have like research behind this yet, but it's more of like, okay, if you, it's chicken or the egg, was this child, did they have a sensory profile already that required that were they high, were hypersensitive or they were hypo responsive and they needed more input? Like, I don't know, but, or did they have myo stuff? And then this profile kind of like became and like emerged from that because they were put in fight or flight and they have sleep deprivation. So now they're trying to regulate themselves. Like, I don't know which one it was, but the thing is, is that when regardless, when you have a child who has myo issues, they typically have sensory issues because they're trying to compensate for what their nervous system is in this dysfunctional like state. 
because of the way that they're breathing and the way that they're sleeping. So what is any nervous system going to do? They're going to like look for proprioceptive input to regulate themselves. They're going to look for vestibular input. They're going to rock. They're going to spin. They're going to put something in their mouth. They're going to try to stimulate trigeminal. They're going to try to stimulate their vagus nerve. They're going to hum all day. They're going to do all kinds of things that are like, oh yeah, they just want input. Like let's give them a chewy. No, it's not that. Like we can give them a chewy, but like what, like why, why are we giving this kid a chewy? And like, why are they chewing through like one a day? Yes. That's the thing. Yes. Like, why? Yes. Yeah. And it's like, we have to like, there's an, like an, a synergy between those two things that I think a lot of people are kind of like missing with that. And it's just, I think it's really important to connect them. And I think it's also really important for people to notice when you do address the malfunctional issues at the con- same, either before or at the same time, when you're working with sensory processing, how you see the sensory needs decrease. That's what I've always seen. The sensory needs go down when they start to sleep better, the intensity and the frequency of their sensory needs really, really goes down quite significantly. They don't magically become coordinated. That's, that's, that doesn't happen. They didn't just like magically like develop their corpus callosum because they're crawling all of a sudden that, that doesn't happen. But if you get them to crawl in therapy, that actually sticks. Like they don't really like flip their B's and their D's anymore. They actually like organically start crossing midline. There's a lot of things that happen that you work on. Like yeah. 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 And it's so, um, they're so complementary to one another and they're kind of like, you can't just like have one without the other. In my opinion, you kind of have to address both of them and not every sensory kid has myo, but like most of the ones I see do, but I mean, it's also because I like, I do it, you know, but it's, um, it's just really, really unfortunate that some people just kind of see one side of it sometimes, but they have to see both. And like, you were seeing both of them, which is with your daughter, which is great. And motor skills are often, um, a reflection of sensory integration and that child sensory processing, but they're not the end all be all of that, right? That's actually like, how does that sensory system function? Uh, so how is that cranial nerve functioning and sending that message to that of that sensory system, mm-hmm. right? Vestibular cochlear, like there's, I call this like the Bermuda triangle of the body because so much happens and there's so many things that can like manifest in a different way, depending on that person's anatomy. And no one's, we, at this point in time, it's like, not to say this, but like, we don't have normal anatomy anymore. We just don't with the craniofacial differences that everybody has and the like oral history and development that everyone has, you know, if you were a kid of the eighties or the seventies or the sixties, like we all had some type of like oral issue with our mouth or some type of thing in our mouth, bottles, pacifier, thumb sucking, whatever it was, unless it was like an indigenous culture. And then they have beautiful white teeth and they have their uh, wisdom teeth intact and beautiful bite, all that kind of stuff. But most of us don't. And then that child was, you know, in that mother's stomach, she probably has some asymmetries. Like it's just kind of like trickling down. And I think it's, um, I just think it's something that we really need to start addressing. I don't know. And I, 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 I can't also birth, right? Like, of course you just want a healthy baby and you want the birth to be as smooth as possible, but a cesarean versus a natural birth or vaginal birth, I should say, not just natural, but like considering all the medications they put moms on. I mean, I wasn't happy to have them. I'm not judging it. I was like, give me all the epidural, but like, you know, at the same time that also changes the birth experience for the baby. And it takes longer sometimes and can be more traumatic for the baby. So like, you just, you know, I keep going back to like, we need to be adjusting these kids at birth. We need to be giving them some sort of homeostasis 
from day one, not waiting until something is wrong. Anyway, that's another conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like they're so smush. They're like made out of Play-Doh. They're like been smushed for nine months and they go through this traumatic thing and they're either pulled out, right? Which is a very different sensory experience than being pushed out, which is a ton of proprioceptive in, like input and so much cranial nerve activation through their scalp, right? When you're pulled out, it's a very different thing. Not to, I mean, with the microbiome and like all the bacteria, like there's so many other ways this conversation could go, but from a sensory perspective and the activation of what that does on the nerves is also very, very different. And when kids get stuck in the birth canal, like cord wrapping too, people aren't asking these questions. It's one of my like all my questions are like really intimate about the birth. And it's not because I want parents to relive trauma, but I'm trying to like, I have my like little, oh, like, and I'm like, where was the damage? Like, why, like, what is being damaged here? Like what nerve in the, what cranial nerve, what brachial plexus, like what, where, where is this happening? Like, why are the traps like this? Like, like why can't it co-contract? Like, why is this baby just flopping? Like, you know, and that's where I have to kind of like try to figure these things out, but hundred percent body work, but it's also like, you have to get the structure right. And that's where I think the body professionals come into play. And I have so much respect for what they do. And it's, um, I really wish that it was something like you said, like they come out and everybody should get it, the mom and the baby. Cause they have this like, and the umbilical cord was cut, but it's like still, it's just invisible at this point, the co-regulation between the two and the amount of stress the moms go through when they, they've been informed, like, this isn't typical. Like you are having trouble with breastfeeding. Now there, she's in this feedback loop. She's stressed out. She's going to get her cortisol levels are going to go up and she's going to nurse her pump. It's going to go right into the breast milk. It's going to go into the baby. And it's like, they really just need that. Like what you said, homeostasis, they need to be brought back to that point in time together. And I think, um, I think people are catching on to that. And I think people are seeing that, but I hope that people really start to see like, you know, there's that one picture that is like uh your fascial the fascia t- fascial tissue straight from the underneath the tongue the, under the, um, all the, the to the toes the front uh what is it the front the line. frontal line or the front something line front central line or something I yeah wrong but it's from fascia yeah. brains. it's from that textbook yeah and it's like it's like this is why we have body professionals this is why I can't I don't do that like I can't this, I, I can only do what I can do. I like, I'm not, I shouldn't be wearing every hat, you know? And it's like, I think really frustrating and really like, um, it's really, uh, it's difficult for parents. It's a lot of professionals to deal with and stuff, but I have to remind them. I'm like, there's a lot of stuff happening in this part of the body. Tell me another part of your body where it talks and where it swallows and where it breathes and where it does all these things. And when you're an infant, that's all you do. Right. Like we talked about how like the mouth breathing, right. And sleep and everything to some extent impacts the nervous system. But what about nasal breathing? Right. Cause that's what we want everybody doing. Like, let's pull it kind of like full circle back to like, okay, correct oral rest posture, tongue up, lips closed, teeth or gum line slightly apart, you know, an infants and then breathing through our nose. So like, what is, I mean, I know it helps the nervous system, but can you explain to everybody, like, what does it do for the nervous system when we're actually nasal breathing properly? Yeah. So from my perspective and so cranial nerves, right. First one is olfactory. And in my kind of what I've kind of noticed and like in my trainings with cranial nerves, they work in an order, right. Cranial nerve one is the first one. And when that one's not on, it's affecting the other ones. It's kind of like when you've got a vestibular system, that's not working, it's going to affect something else, tactile, proprioceptive, potentially the the visual system. I don't know, but it affects something else. So when you don't have cranial nerve one on, it's going to impact two, three, four, and five, or potentially other ones. And so you're kind of already like at a disadvantage. Like you talked about your buckets, one of your buckets is gone. Yeah. And then also it warms all of the air coming in. 
right? Warms all the air. It develops nitrous oxide, helps with your oxygen absorption in your blood. It really, really is the most effective way to have the most oxygenated oxygen come into your body. And more than anything, it puts you in a state of rest and digest. When you're, I just say it simply, like when you're breathing through your mouth, you're gasping, whether your lips are minimally apart or whether your mouth is like wide open, your tongue's hanging out, your brain perceives that as gasping. Parents are always like, oh yeah, but his mouth is just like a little open. I'm like, it's still open. Yeah. That's gasping. His brain stem knows no difference. It doesn't care. It just knows that it's like this human struggling to breathe. And so when you do nasal breathe, it does so many different functions. And also, I mean, the filtration system alone, like the three filters in your nose that collect all of the bacteria, all the gook, all the grossness and create boogers to expel it out of your body. That is something that really protects your immune system too, from being like attacked at your tonsils and all the inflammation and having them get inflamed. I mean, nasal breathing is kind of the most, to me, one of the most important things for the nervous system, the way it impacts the nervous system and the way it impacts the immune system and the way that it impacts the oxygen absorption. There's so many, I mean, Patrick Mayer could probably tell you like another bajillion things, but yeah, yeah. He's been on, a, he's been on the podcast. He's taught in the, yeah. the membership. He's amazing. I always tell people go yeah. to clinic dot what dog.com.org. I always forget. Yeah. Um, but he's got so much great information, especially, especially for pediatrics and he's got free stuff Ah. for pediatrics, which is nice. But yeah, I mean, I, I love this conversation because we know that like nasal breathing warms, moisten filters, you know, it does all the important things. It's kind of like your air doctor, right? People have Mm -hmm. these air doctors for their houses. And I'm like, that's your nose for your body. Like that is your air doctor for your body. And if you, if you aren't using it, right, then you're basically inhaling through your mouth, all the stuff that you shouldn't be bringing in. And that's why we get these kids that are chronically ill in preschool. Yes, they have to build immune systems. Yes, children in preschool are going to get sick more frequently the first year they're exposed to all kinds of new germs versus like year two and beyond. But why are some of these kids sick chronically year after year after year? They shouldn't be. They they are now exposed to those types of, you know, and yes, we have new germs and viruses and everything, but the same, the same kids who have constant runny nose, you know, mm. mouth open, like we've talked about those allergic shiners, they just, they look tired and they don't look like they feel 100%. We need to be looking at these kids. And of course, like these mask mandates have only hurt this further. That definitely has not helped either because now let's put a mask on a kid who's mouth breathing. That's going to really, you know, give us a nice warm yeah. environment of <laughs> fun yeah. bacteria to play with. Um, yeah. but yeah, That's I always, I always say if that child is chronically ill and you had mentioned you have a history of ear infections, I did too, as a child. And I had one actually after one of my daughters was born, I think it was Mia a couple of years ago. They are painful. I thought I was gonna have to go to the hospital. I was like, and I can tolerate high levels of pain. That was horrible horrible as an adult. Like, and I was like, gosh, was it this bad when I was a kid? And the, the PA was like, no, usually it's actually a lot worse than adults. I was like, oh, yeah. lucky, lucky me. So I, I relate to that pain, but I actually haven't had any issues with my ears since going through expansion myself. Cause I went into the DNA appliance for two years and, um, you know, I now have 38 millimeters between my, my back molars. I kind of am at a standstill because I need to work on my septum or my turbinates before I think I can get my maxilla to, turn properly, it's turned in a little bit on the left side and it won't hold no matter how much body work or appliance work mm-hmm. I do, it's just not holding. And I was very lucky to get to spend the weekend with some dentists and orthos who <laughs> have all kinds of advice for me. Yeah. Um, like one of the first things they said was don't, don't go correct the deviated septum. Actually just go like, let's go see, if we can shave down the turbinates and see if what that does for your septum and for your ability to, you know, nasal breathe, because I guess when you correct the deviated septum actually can do more harm than good in some patients. And so that's a whole topic I don't fully understand yet, but yeah. 
I was like, oh my gosh, okay, well, nasal breathing is important. So we want to protect that. And I think it just goes back to, you know, like I got diagnosed with ADHD at 19 and put on Ritalin when I had never had that diagnosis before. They did allude to it when I was five and it's, I think, been there all along, but I did well enough in school that it was like a non-discussed issue, um, mm-hmm. had typical RPE braces, all the things, upper, lower, you know, permanent retainers, those got taken out at age 30. And then my teeth started to shift. And I was like, Whoa, what's going on in a space. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it impacts you across the lifespan, but I think I love how you pointed out, you know, with, you know, um, cranial nerve number one, our olfactory nerve, how that is, if that's impacted, then it has this like ripple effect down the, the line of cranial nerves. And nerve number two, right? It's our optic nerve. So hi, I wonder why vision is impaired when we have an orofacial myofunctional disorder. Like everything yeah. has to collapse on itself. So just, yeah. it's such a fascinating topic. So thank you. Thank you for yeah. hearing your wisdom with us. Yeah, of course. And like, I mean, I, I speaking from both sides as a professional and also as a patient, like I can't emphasize to people enough when they're like, well, they're just going to grow out of this. I'm like, no, I had an ear infection at 30 where I lost 20% of my hearing for like six months and had tinnitus for two years. Like you don't want that. It's awful. And it's all related to my craniofacial development. It was related to my swallow. I dove super deep into like the mile for myself and then got two Alps put in. And that's the only thing that's really like helped me. And I have so much more space now. And that's really what changed my like ear function. And like, you can't ignore the pain here. You cannot. And it's like TMJ pain, unless people know what TMJ or tooth pain is like, they don't understand an ear infection. It's like the worst headache in the world, but there's a nerve there. Yeah. And I, I just really tell people all the time. They're like, they're like, well, do you think like this will get better? And I'm like, no. And the longer you wait, the more it's going to cost you. Right. Our bodies continue to compensate, but the more compensating we have to do, the more of those energy buckets, they get taken away from other areas of life. And so our quality of life just gets further and further impacted. And that's why it's like, I don't like to be alarmist, but we should be addressing these things in our infants. And you know what, if it's not today, but it's two months from now, that's okay. Uh, Don't make it 20 years from now. Don't make it 10 years from now. Don't make it two years from now. I I am so tired of hearing pediatricians say, Oh, that's fine. Mouth breathing is fine. That's normal. It's never fine. Oh, they'll get their thumb out when they're ready. That's fine until they're three or four dentists. Some dentists say that too. And that are not in this airway centric space. No, if our tongue is doing its job, if our body is doing its job, let's think about this. When were these things invented? We have not always needed these. So why do we think it's normal to need a thumb in our mouth? You know, there's no discussion of thumb sucking when we go back in ancient history. No, if the tongue is on the palate, it fills, it, it does its job and nothing else is needed. It adds to that, na- na- that natural palate expander. It gives the right input that's not needed for the body to feel, you know, like, nice and calm and cool and collected. We're able to nasal breathe. Our lips are closed. Our teeth are slightly apart. It's, it's really amazing how our body will do these really cool things when it's given the opportunity to function the way it's supposed to. And then you, you know, that's it. Yeah. Anyways, we've been preaching this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's great. When I told you, like, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just getting you now. Right. We're just trying. And and it's like, we can only do so much with what we have. We already know that our jaws are smaller. We know the thing that our, our skulls are shrinking. So let's at least take the anatomy that we can work with and maximize our opportunity to function as humans. Like, why don't we want that for, I mean, I know I want that for my children and I know I want that for myself, even, you know, in my thirties. And I know that there is individuals in their sixties and their seventies who are getting treated for this. So it's never too late, but don't wait is my message. If you're hearing it now, don't wait. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Couldn't Anything else you want to add in that we didn't cover? I think we've talked about um, so much. <laughs> I mean, I, could, I feel like I could talk to you forever. Um, I know, we I mean, talk all day. <laughs> I could talk all day. You know, honestly, I mean, not, not really, nothing in particular. I just, I really hope that for any of like the professionals who are listening that like, if you're an OT, like look into this stuff, open your kid's mouth, look at the airway of your speech therapist, same thing. If you're working in the school districts, like look in there, like you might get some pushback, but like, this is a kid's life on the line. Like this is not something to be taken lightly. And it's, um, and if you're an older person, like that's the beauty of neuroplasticity, you can rewire these things. It might take a little bit of time, but you can, the, the, the human is amazing. You can do so many things. Sure, it'll be easier if you're younger, but you can still do it. And I just want people to have hope in that. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work, but you can do it. And it's just, it, it's habit retraining and getting your structure right. It doesn't have to be so complicated. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining thank me today. You. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. So it's been great. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 